0: Welcome back to the Todd Duncan Podcast. This is where success happens. A member of the industry syndicate. Todd's goal is to transform your business and life through deeper connections, higher trust, and proven strategies to help you win and give you your best life ever. So if you've Googled me or done any research on me, you'll see that I have a very special relationship with a company called Under Armour. Kevin Plank, the founder and owner, and I are very dear friends, and this is how that happened. 05, it's hot in the desert. Under Armour had just come out with this men's breathable underwear. So I'd sent my dad this email. Hey, Pop, Under Armour's got this great underwear. I think it'll do wonderful in the desert. Send me some. His response, hey, son, not happening. They cost $39 a pair, and I never paid that much for underwear. So my response is, hey, cheapskate, send me some, I'll pay you when I get home. Dude sends one pair, one (laughs) pair. So I have them on that day. And they said, hey, they they pulled you out, they threw you up on this gurney when we got you to the hospital, they start rolling you in, they say, you had not said a word to anybody. And all of a sudden this nurse comes up and she starts going up your pant leg with a pair of scissors. And they said, and you roll up on the gurney and you're like, hey, whatever you do, don't cut my drawers, they cost 40 bucks. And Boom. (laughs) and I pass back out. And so now that pair of underwear hangs on the wall at Under Armour Headquarters in Baltimore, Maryland in Kevin Plank's office, yes. If they didn't wash them, they're probably standing by themselves, but that's another story. They got shrapnel holes, they got a bullet hole, it's wonderful, all right? Guess what, I have never needed underwear since that day. I got plenty, I could supply this whole room with it if I needed to. So, if you don't know what happens to, to wounded veterans after that, here's what happens. They'll stabilize you. They'll get you ready. They're wanting to get you back home. And so, they, they did a few surgeries. They get me stabilized. And, um, and then there was a holding station. The holding station was in southern Iraq. They'd fly you down there. They'd hold you for about 18 hours. And then they'd push you on to Launstuhl, Germany. And then from Germany, you'd make it to Andrews Air Force Base, which then you would end up at Walter Reed. So... They load me on an aircraft. We're flying into Belgrade to this holding station, and um, of of my veterans that were in here, was anybody in the Air Force? Just one, two. All right, these are smartest people in the three. These are smartest people in the room. All right, let me tell you something. If your kids, your neighbors' kids, your friends, your whoever, I don't care, if they say, "Hey, I want to go to the military," tell them to join the Air Force. All right, if they have, if someone in the Air Force has to live on someone else's military base, they get substandard housing allowance because your base is not nice enough for the Air Force. All right, the Air Force has got to stay in the JW, everybody else is in the Super 8. You understand? So, I, as we're flying in, I look out this little porthole and I, I see this huge tent and it looks like the Taj Mahal. And I think to myself, well, the Air Force must be here. Sure enough, we land. They start rolling these gurneys in. They got an air conditioner for every foot and a half inside of this tent, all right? It is negative five degrees in the middle of the desert. Everybody else is sweating like a hostage, not the Air Force, all right? Those people in there got polar fleece on and it's 130 degrees outside and I'm mad. I'm like, Lee, I knew I should have joined the Air Force. And so I cussed about two or three of them out and they were done with me. They just parked me over the corner and they're like, just leave this guy here for a few minutes. And I'm laying there, and I'm feeling sorry for myself, you name it, man, poor pitiful me, all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, I look up, and it's kind of like this bright light shining on me. It's like a mirage. I see this beautiful Air Force nurse walking towards me. So I'm like, I fix myself. Yes, Sam. So I start fixing myself up, and she walks up, and she goes, hey, uh, how are you? Ooh, she goes, when's the last time you had a bath? I said, oh, it has been a long time. And she goes, you know what you need? You need a sponge bath. I said, oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. So now I'm grinning from ear to ear. She walks away. This guy walks up. He goes, hey, man, what is wrong with you? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you cussed out three or four of us coming in here. Now you're sitting here grinning from ear to ear. I said, yeah, buddy. I said, I am about to get a sponge bath. He goes, yes, you are. My name's John, and I'm here to give it to you. I said, no, John. No, that was not part of the deal. So this is where my life started to change. This is where what you're going to see me do now is I'm going to start paralleling the things that happened to me during that time, after that time, even before that time, into the message that I'm trying to relay to you all today. Because what I want you to take away from this today is several things. One, not every day is a good day, but there's good in every day. You have to find the good in the day. You're going to wake up sometimes, and you're going to say, I don't want to do today. My challenge to you is find the good in that day instead of what's going wrong. Because look, you're already in that gas tank of goodness. You're already at 50%. You know why? Because you woke up and you took a freaking breath. That's pretty good right there. All right, so now why am I sitting here saying today's going to be bad? I'm already at 50% good. So then when you get up and you walk down the hallway, you see your loved one, your dog, your cat, I don't care what it is, there's another 25% right there because something or somebody loves you. They depend on you. And then when you get to work, if you're surrounded by the right team at work, There's the rest of your 25, 20%, depending on who's around you, all right? There's the rest of your goodness in that day. So now you no longer have a reason to say, hey, today's a bad day. No, you just found the good in the day. Because what you'll realize is, what I began to realize was I was wasting time. I could sit around and feel sorry for myself. All the reasons of why I couldn't succeed Oh, you know, I'm, I'm bummed up. They're talking about cutting my leg off. You know, this, that, or the other. I had every excuse of why I could go out and no longer be successful if that's the route I chose to go. And so when they finally got me back to Walter Reed and they started doing surgeries, they do surgery after surgery, I got to a point where I had no quality of life. I was miserable. And finally I walked into the surgeon, because I can promise you he and I were very good friends at this point, and I said, hey, sir, cut my leg off. He goes, whoa, wait a minute. He goes, we don't have the statistics to know whether or not that's the right thing to do. And I said, well, I do. I said, because I got no quality of life, and there's things I want to do. And the main thing I want to do is I want to redeploy. I want to go back, and I want to continue to go overseas. And he's like, dude, we need to send you to the psych ward. Something's wrong with you. And I'm like, no, it's in here. It's in my heart. And so we argued for a long time about this. And finally, I just told him, I said, look, you, either you're going to do it or I'll find somebody that will. So he agreed to do it, obviously. I thought that that was going to be the end-all, be-all. Chad gets this fancy leg, I move on with life. That's the furthest thing that happened from the truth. Because, one, I was hard-headed. But, two, before they did the surgery, he goes, hey, listen, I need you to talk to an anesthesiologist real quick. I said, all right, bring her in here. I know her well, too. She comes in and she looks at me and she goes, hey, here's the deal. You've had so many surgeries, because at this point in time I was up to 17 or 18 surgeries. She goes, you've had so many surgeries in a 12-month period that I will not give you general anesthesia. She goes, so what that means is you won't be able to feel anything, you'll have a spinal block, but you'll be able to hear and smell everything that's going on when he cuts your leg off. So if you're okay with that, let me know and we'll schedule the surgery. I was like, give me a bottle of Jack in a couple of days and let me think about that, all right? And then the last thing I remember rolling into the surgical unit that day was that surgeon going, hey, Chad, hey, buddy, you're not a starfish. When I cut this thing off, it's not growing back. I was like, wow, doc, that's a great thing to say to somebody as soon as you're rolling them in. A little bit late rolling in the surgical unit, you know. But it dawns on me that I'm going to come out and I'm not going to be the same. And that's exactly what happened. And yes, I thought I was just going to pop on this fancy leg and start doing life. But it didn't happen because I was hard-headed. And then I started getting, feeling sorry for myself, going into that dark hole. And then what I started to realize was I wasn't going to get through this without the people around me. And not only that, I had become unfit. I had become unfit mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, you name all the unfitness that I could have, and I had it because I had given up. I just let it go. And then one day, as I'm feeling sorry for myself, rolling down the hallway of Walter Reed because my leg wasn't working that day, I see this guy. He's in a wheelchair. He had hit an IED. He was paralyzed. He was working, he was working that wheelchair with a mouthpiece, with a joystick in his mouth. And I said, man, I am wasting a whole lot of time feeling sorry for myself when there's people out there in far worse condition than I am. And that day I went back and I said, okay, how do I undo everything that I have done to myself? Because I did it to myself. How do I get fit? How do I get my mind right? The first thing I had to do was figure out who was on my team, because you know what? I had learned very quickly was everyone that said they were on my team, when things got hard, when I was at the hospital in Walter Reed for four and a half months, I didn't hear from them. I didn't see, I didn't see them. I only saw a select group of individuals. So that made me think, okay, maybe these people that said they really cared for me at one point in time, maybe it wasn't the truth. This has now become burdensome. I am now a burden. I will not do that. So I made it a point to start getting fit. I went out, not the smartest guy in the room, all right? I went out and signed up for a 5K. Didn't even have a leg yet, but I'm like, I'll figure out somehow how to do this. It may be in a wheelchair, but I'm gonna do it. So I did it. And then after it took me like three hours to run a 5K, what do you do? You go sign up for the New York City Marathon. So six months later, yeah, brilliant, right? So I did that. I went and ran the New York City Marathon because I was having to prove to myself that I was still the person that I originally was. And so I go up, I do the New York City Marathon. Unlike Jonathan, I never had the desire to run a marathon, all right? I'm not built that way. I will never do, I didn't want to do it with two legs, much less one. Done, I'm not doing it again. Love you, Jonathan, not happening, all right? But I started to prove to myself that I could do this. And so then what I had to do, because I went back and said, hey, now that I got this fancy new leg, I want to start redeploying. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't know if we can do this. We're not sure. So at that point in time, like I said, I realized that I had to get back into a fit status. And then, when was wanting to go back overseas, I had to talk them in. I had to put on my salesman hat and go in there and sell it to the docs and to everybody else that was the approval authority of how they would let me go back overseas. And that was hard to do. But what I started to realize was I was going to have to become fast if I was going to get this opportunity. Because what they came back and told me was, hey, you're going to have to do another selection course with able-bodied individuals, and we will see how well you do. If you don't do good, we're probably not going to let you go back. If you do good, then we'll reassess it at that point. So myself and one other amputee went through this selection course. And what happened was, because I had set my mind to figure out how to get fit again, and because I had set my mind on how I could get fast again, he and I ended up outperforming 73% of the able-bodied individuals that were out there. And so, and I don't tell you that because I want you to think that I'm some kind of Superman because we know how that story ended. I tell you that because you're only limited by this right here. You're only limited by this and this heart right here. It's your desire, it's what you wanna be, it's who you wanna be. And so then when they finally said okay, you can start going back overseas, we started redeploying. We go back, we're right back in the middle of everything that we were doing. We had proven that we could keep up with everybody else that was on the ground. And so on my second trip over, As an amputee, I ended up getting shot again. So I remember calling my dad. Hey, dad, you're not going to believe this. I'm okay, but I got shot again. And his response was, hey, son, you're an idiot. And I'm like, thanks, dad. I love you too. I appreciate all the support, pop. He goes, no, really. He goes, you're walking around on a daily reminder of what a bad day is. He goes, why do you keep doing this? I said, because it's in here, dad. I said, it's in here, and it's because I love the people that are around me. That's what drives me to want to do this. It's not because I hate what's in front of me. It's because I love what's behind me. That's what I want to do that. That's why I want to do this. So I can continue to deploy. Went over a couple more times, and then got shot for the third time. All right? At this point in time when I call him, he's like, hey, son, here's the deal. Have them do a DNA test because there's no way you're related to me. You are dumber than I thought. And I'm like, man, they just keep pouring on the love, Pops. I appreciate it. But it truly was not a desire to go over and necessarily do that job, although I love the job and the people that were around me. It was the fact that I felt like I was going to let my team down. I had become so such an integral part of that team and loved everybody on that team so much that I didn't want to feel like I was going to let them down. And so once I started doing that, and began to move forward. And my career began to progress, things started happening for me, and I realized that there was never a time that I should go back and waste one minute of one day feeling sorry for myself, saying that I couldn't do something, saying that for some reason, I would make an excuse to make myself feel better. I wasn't gonna do it anymore. So here's where I'm really going to parallel this with what you do every day. Know who's on your team. You have to know who's on your team. You have to know who's to your right and to your left. You know what? You're not in this room because you have potential. Potential to me is a French word that means ain't done shit. All right? It's exactly what potential is. I don't need you to have potential. I need you to be proven. If you're coming on my team, you better bring something to the fight. All right, I don't need this, oh, well, this person I think because of this great potential they have. Wrong. You better have done something in your life to prove to me that you need to be on my team. Otherwise, you're not going to stay on there. Because the people to my right and to my left, they're the ones that make you successful. It's not you. If you, think, if you think for one minute that I was the reason these people were successful running around in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're wrong. It's because it was a team. It was the person to my right and to my left. The person that said, I'm with you. Right? One of the things that I miss the most about the military is in a gunfight, you don't give a damn what color the person is next to you. You don't care what their sexual orientation is. You don't care where they go to church, what they do, or how they do anything in their life. All you care about is can you bring me home? If I get hurt, can you pick me up? Can you drag me out of here? What you will realize in a gunfight, is nothing else matters and if you take that to your business life and you understand and you look at the people that you're wanting to put on your team as that's my teammate they can get us to mission success put everything else aside bring them on because it's the right teammate